Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The following is used with permission of the Columbia University Press. Hi, I'm Ethan Warren, and you're listening to Pod Thomas Anderson, a nine-part miniseries on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions. Every week, I'm bringing you excerpts from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, now available wherever you order your books, as well as insights on Anderson and his work from critics, podcasters, actors, and more. This week, I'll be discussing Anderson's fifth feature, There Will Be Blood, with guests Roxana Haddadi, Emma Stefanski, and Sarah Welch-Larsen. All book excerpts are used with permission of Columbia University Press. Paul Thomas Anderson has described experiencing significant writer's block in the five years between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood. The dam finally broke when Anderson encountered Upton Sinclair's 1926 novel Oil, which proved an apt match for many of the themes that he was then interested in pursuing, but had struggled to lend narrative form. Adapting the first section of Sinclair's book into the first half of There Will Be Blood, and then diverging from the text entirely to create an original second half, Anderson partnered with Daniel Day-Lewis, an actor known for his judicious selection of roles and his tendency to take an active hand in crafting his characters. Thus, There Will Be Blood marked the first instance of Anderson allowing for anything resembling a co-writer, a significant step away from the rigid grasp that he kept on his scripts during the 1990s. The resulting film would be his first unqualified box office success, yield the first significant Oscar presence for an Anderson project, even as a statuette for his own work continued to elude him, and garner near-universal acclaim. Yet despite the prestige trappings of this turn-of-the-century epic, Anderson made the cannily counterintuitive choice to premiere There Will Be Blood not at an established global film festival, but rather at the upstart genre festival Fantastic Fest, an early indication that he intended an idiosyncratic framing for a work destined to draw comparisons to George Stevens, John Huston, and Stanley Kubrick. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. You will be cast up at the rest of the competition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, They won't be there. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. We'll offer 150,000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel? I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Don't bully me, Daniel, please! 
I see the worst in people. We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil! I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. There Will Be Blood tells the story of Daniel Plainview, played by Day-Lewis, and his rise from silver miner to oil tycoon across the first quarter of the 20th century. Constructed with heavy use of temporal elision, one of many factors that drew perhaps counterintuitive comparison to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, the nearly wordless first act finds Daniel staking his claim on an ore mine in 1898, then jumps ahead to 1902, finding him at the head of a team constructing an oil well. When the derrick collapses, killing one of his partners, Daniel adopts the fallen man's infant son, cueing the shift into the film's main action, which takes place in 1911. Alongside the now nine-year-old boy dubbed H.W. Plainview, played by Dylan Frazier, Daniel has established an independent drilling company and is approached by Paul Sunday, played by Paul Dano, on whose tip Daniel travels to Little Boston, a ramshackle outpost in Southern California that happens to be sitting on an ocean of oil. Selling his services to the guileless townsfolk, Daniel commences drilling, only to be stymied by the requests for deference and validation from Paul's twin brother, lay preacher Eli, also played by Dano. The two men commence an increasingly spiteful rivalry, with Daniel's bitterness deepening after H.W. is deafened in a Derrick explosion. Daniel's spiritual degradation reaches a head after a con artist, played by Kevin J. O'Connor, successfully poses as his brother for a period, only to be murdered by Daniel once the savage oil man discovers the truth. Taking advantage of Daniel's psychological vulnerability and desperation to complete a pipeline between Little Boston and the Pacific Ocean, Eli extorts a humiliating baptism from the resentfully contrite heathen in exchange for the rights to an essential tract of land, and tacitly declares himself the winner of their feud. One final time jump brings the story to 1927, with Daniel now sequestered in a lavish mansion, drunkenly overseeing an empire while being waited on by household staff. After a devastating split with the now-grown H.W., played by Russell Harvard, Daniel is surprised by a visit from Eli, seemingly prosperous but in fact impoverished. Daniel extorts his own form of contrition from his longtime rival, and then bludgeons Eli to death with a bowling pin. With There Will Be Blood, which coincided with the 10-year anniversary of Boogie Nights, Anderson made the shift from Indiewood upstart to established auteur. The film landed in the number one slot in many critics' year-end rankings, including Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly, Keith Phipps of the AV Club, and Glenn Kenny of Premiere. It grossed more than $76 million against a reported budget of $25 million, and won Academy Awards for Day-Lewis and cinematographer Robert Elswit, alongside an additional six nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Plenty of critics were happy to risk hyperbole in assessing There Will Be Blood. Richard Schickel described it as, quote, one of the most wholly original American movies ever made, end quote, and Kenneth Turin characterized it as, quote, the most incendiary combination since the Molotov cocktail, end quote. Virtually all noted the distinct gear shift it seemed to represent in Anderson's career, with Wesley Morris arguing that he had traded, quote, a desperation to run us over and knock us out, end quote, for a shift to more, quote, patient art, end quote. Still, there were critics who questioned the urge to immediately canonize There Will Be Blood, Stephanie Zacharek went so far as to dub There Will Be Blood, quote, an austere folly, tempered and wrought to the point of dullness, end quote. Even with dissenting voices, however, film history has sided decisively with the enraptured. There Will Be Blood was ranked the best film of the century to date by The Guardian in 2016 and The New York Times in 2017. I, I don't know. It's one of those movies that you just watch 
and you're not prepared for how good it is and how cool it is and how amazing it looks and how good everybody is in it. You're just like, oh, wow. <laughs> like I've been watching, I don't know, Transformers movies this whole time. I've been wasting my life. I have a very mixed relationship with PTA uh, in that I think some of his films are amazing and some of them absolutely do not work for me. Uh, and I think this one works for me so well because it is about obsession, I think. Uh, and I'm very drawn to how this film sort of tries to understand what are the uniquely American ways in which we become obsessed with success, with competition, with capital, uh, with, you know, as this film talks about a lot, with destroying <laughs> our competition in an attempt to accrue capital. So all of that sort of in terms of like a moral conundrum speaks to me. And then also it just feels sort of like a nightmare that you're sinking into. And I really enjoy that feeling uh, from the sound design to the production design, I just think all of it works together to make me think about what are the worst things that we could be capable of doing. And I guess that's just what I like in movies. What are the worst things we could be capable of doing? Uh, and let's like spend time in that world. So I think that's why... That's why it's always There Will Be Blood when a discussion of PTA movies comes up. It's always that one for me. There Will Be Blood is a movie that I admire more than I like, if that makes any sense. Um, it's one of the earlier Paul Thomas Andersons that I ever encountered. I think I watched it when I was going through a bunch of Best Picture winners and nominees from 2007. So I probably hamstrung myself by watching uh, No Country for Old Men one weekend and then There Will Be Blood like the weekend afterwards. So it was a lot of very dark, heavy stuff. Um, but for this particular movie, I think at first I was struck by the level of brutality and the way that it's very perceptive about how men seem to move in the world, especially when they're deeply entrenched in capitalism. And I think that's why I appreciated it because I really like explorations of masculinity on film. Um, but I, that's also part of the reason why I kind of held it at arm's length at first was because it felt so deeply masculine and so deeply hyper-focused on that idea of capitalism that I think at first the religious aspects of the movie kind of passed me by. And then the more I thought about it, the more I started to think about the relationship between religion and money in this movie. And it unsettled me deeply um, because I am an American Christian and I come from an American evangelical background. And so that portrait that's painted in this movie is not very flattering at all. Um, and this was a few years ago. So I was still like doing I guess what the cool kids called deconstruction at the time, just trying to think through my own relationship to the religion. Um, and so it's it's kind of just been under my skin for at least a few years. Um, and then on a revisit, I think I was just struck by just how deeply perceptive this movie is about folding together that uneasy, not really a friendly alliance between organized religion and capitalism and I don't know, like, I, I'm still hesitant to say that I love it, but it is a movie that I admire, and it's definitely one of the better movies I think I've ever seen. 
It definitely feels like an old movie. I, I don't. That's not really a, a very intelligent way of saying of putting it. But when you're watching it, it really doesn't feel like it came out in the the 2000s at all. It feels like you're watching something from I don't know the 1950s when they were you know going back and adapting like the John Steinbeck novels and everything. It feels like you're watching something that was made concurrently with the time in which it's based. Like I believe when I'm watching that movie that they were like, oh yeah, like everyone looked like that as they were filming the movie. Everyone talked like that as they were filming the movie. That's that we're we're in, we're in 1911 for sure. And you can't tell me that this was all done like a hundred years later. There's a really cool sense of authenticity to everything to even just like the clothes that people wear but then all the all the like structures that they build you have the great part right at the beginning where he's where you're like watching him wordlessly like figure out how to make you know a, a, a machine that gets oil up out of the ground i don't know the words for these things i'm not that well that familiar with them oil culture but um yeah just it's it completely transports you in a way that isn't like flashy he's never like look at how authentic i'm being like you never really feel that when you're watching this you just feel like you're there which is really really cool and i i haven't really seen that in a lot of movies beyond this one i think it opened up for me right away uh, just because i was so uncomfortable and i i just remember liking that <laughs> <laughs> for whatever reason i remember thinking like oh this sound design is horrible and i want to close my ears and i never want to hear it again but also i do want to hear it again right like there is something about this that is pleasurable in a very odd way so i think this one felt pretty immediate there have been some other pta films that i've gone back to over and over again that have never really clicked for me but this one felt like it immediately grabbed me I keep finding new stuff in it and there's never been a time where it's like you know I should watch there will be blood where I don't it just always happens whether it's at like 2 a.m. or the middle of the day it just always happens We'll be right back after this quick break. In the final scene of There Will Be Blood, after the roughly 15-year time jump that bridges the main action with this coda, Eli Sunday returns to his old nemesis Daniel Plainview. Newly resplendent, the once humble preacher now relates the news of the world and his own spiritual conquering of it. As Eli describes his own achievements, spreading the gospel of the third revelation via radio, and those of their acquaintances, Bandy's grandson has lit out for Hollywood to become a movie star, the viewer may be struck by a vertiginous sense of context rushing in to fill a vacuum at the heart of this story. Eli presents massive technological leaps made in the past decade and a half of the young century, but these specific references to historical benchmarks call attention to how mythologically hermetic the world of Little Boston has been over the preceding two hours. During the promotional tour for There Will Be Blood, Anderson was asked more than once how cognizant he was of the historical implications of his story. Quote, it's a slippery slope when you start thinking about something other than just a battle between two guys, end quote, he said in 2008. The film, he believed, might, quote, get kind of murky, end quote, if too much conscious attention was paid to its socio-political reverberations. 
best to, quote, work from the characters first and foremost and let the rest take care of itself, end quote. As Anderson has turned his storyteller's eye toward the past in the years since Punch Drunk Love, he has seen the 20th century as a toolbox and a playset, raw materials that can be reconfigured into a time-lapsed mythic uber-narrative. While this focus on pure cinematic pleasure, Sand's pesky factual complexity has undoubtedly contributed to the mass appeal of his idiosyncratic period pieces, his lax approach to historical truth has been greeted in some corners as, to quote socialist critic Joanne Laurier, a, quote, stubborn social evasiveness that damagingly holds him back, end quote. I think the thing that gets me about this movie is just the the competition of capitalism versus organized religion and how the moment organized religion comes into contact with capitalism, it's it's um, it's made corrupt. It's it's soiled. It's almost as though like the moment it touches oil, it can never come away and become clean from it. And so just watching Eli's character grow throughout the entire movie and become a, a successful radio preacher. And when he finally shows up to Plainview's doorstep to ask to try to sell the last of um, the land to him, he kind of feels oily himself, both in like the snake oil salesman kind of way, but also in the he smells money and he knows that he wants to be able to get a hold of it. Um and he's just not particularly good at that game. I think he has everybody else around him fooled, but Plainview knows a cheat when he sees one because Plainview is a cheat. And so, I mean, the moment that, at least in this version of this kind of story, the moment that organized religion and capitalism get together in a room, organized religion is going to get its brains bashed out down a bowling alley. And it's it just, it can't, it can't survive that relationship. And that's something that pops up in the Bible constantly. Like Jesus is always talking about how you cannot serve God and money at the exact same time. And I think that this movie is very perceptive about that idea of you have to pick one. You cannot have both. And the moment you throw yourself in with capitalism, the religion is just going to go completely out the window because the religion that Jesus preached, or at least that I believe that he preached anyway, is not one of power. And so the moment you start chasing that power, you start to stray away from it. And then um, things tend to go downhill pretty quickly from there. Published in 1926, Upton Sinclair's novel Oil tells the story of James Arnold Ross Jr., whose father, James Arnold Ross Sr., is an oil magnate transparently modeled upon Edward L. Doheny. Ross Jr., nicknamed Bunny, begins as a child who unquestioningly adores his father, and the narrative traces his gradual socialist awakening. Workers' rights are just one of a variety of issues for which the novel serves as rhetorical debate, with another significant thread being America's ethical responsibilities surrounding World War I. Bunny's political guru, Paul Sunday, finds his military service bringing him to Siberia, where he is enmeshed in the Bolshevik uprising and radicalized as a communist. The closing credits of There Will Be Blood list the film as based on Sinclair's novel, but as Anderson said in interviews surrounding the film's release, quote, there's not enough of the book in the movie to feel like a proper adaptation, end quote. Anderson adapts Sinclair's novel fairly closely, and at times virtually verbatim, until he diverges completely during the Derek Fire set piece. Leading up to this schism, he swaps out the groundwork Sinclair lays for socialist themes in favor of religious ones. I was unsure, I think, when first watching it, about whether he would be successful. Like, I remember wondering, like, is this going to be sort of a story about failure and what that failure does to a person and how it transforms them? And then that first explosion of the oil was like, okay, no, we're going to tell a story about 
success and how morally corrupting that can be. So I just remember everything about that. I mean, even as we're talking about it right now, I can hear what that scene sounds like, right? And how it feels like a gallop uh, and this race that we are forced to be part of. I immediately think about how viscous the oil looks. So there's just so much texture to that scene that I think we can see and hear. And I think that is really, it really sticks with me. The, the oil fire is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life in a movie. I, you know, it's one of those, it's like, you know, watching Mad Max and shit like that. It's like, wow, they really, they really did that. Like, they, <laughs> uh, it's, it's such a great sequence. Um, it's such a cool, you know, it looks amazing. There's this sense of like time scale that you get because you know you you get all the natural light in the background of the these like big expanses of sky and then like suddenly it's dark and he's still sitting there and the flames are like lighting his face and everything um yeah that's that's another that's another favorite scene i just yeah i i, I think it's just a really cool i don't know i know i'm not saying anything original here i just think it's a really cool movie um and it's cool that pretty much everyone agrees that it's it's incredible and that's you know you don't get that a lot either so it's very special to me. But I remember there was a piece that went sort of viral a couple years ago. It was maybe in The Guardian. And it was written by a woman who said that, like, all of the men in her life, like, all of her ex-boyfriends were always trying to get her to watch this movie. And how much she, like, hated it. And it was peak film bro culture. And I just remember being like, maybe as a woman, I hate women. Because this is, like, the worst thing I've ever read. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, like, movies, sure, movies can be for a specific audience, but I feel like this movie in particular has so much to say about, you know, the term late-stage capitalism is very overused, but I think it has so much to say about, like, the kind of people that built America and the bloody shadow that we're all operating under every day. And I just feel like that message uh, is for anybody who watches it. It is not gendered. Uh, it is just American. Anderson has spoken of his, quote, obsession, end quote, with John Steinbeck, and used the same term to describe his feelings about Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. The influence of that story, a multi-generational saga set in California during the early 20th century in which the rivalry between Cain and Abel is enacted by two successive generations of headstrong men, is palpable in There Will Be Blood. Sinclair's novel, on the other hand, bears far greater resemblance to The Grapes of Wrath. It's no surprise that Oil should have caught Anderson's attention, but the fact that he retrofitted the content to suit his preferred, more mythic Steinbeck work speaks to his preference for that mode of storytelling and his discomfort with the openly political aspects of his source material. The, the really the crazy one that I always think about and I, I you know everyone quotes this part too is when he goes into the church and he gets Paul Dano to like you know to save him and he's like kneeling there in the in the front and he's saying you know I abandoned my child I've abandoned my boy and the way that uh, that Daniel Day Lewis like acts that like his, his he's so strange in this movie you really don't know like what you know what Daniel Plainview is thinking ever in any scene really because he's always he's sort of like made uh to be 
you know, a guy who like thinks like four or five moves ahead, like he's always tricking people. He's always getting one over on people. Um, and he goes into the church and you see him like really kind of get into the like the crazy, you know, preachery, yelly stuff that that Paul is saying uh, and like prompting him to be like, you know, say it, say it, say it, you abandon, you know, all the horrible things that he's done. Uh, you know, confess or whatever. And you see him like, you see Daniel Day-Lewis like smiling once Paul Dano starts like slapping him in the face. <laughs> I like just watched the movie and I was completely like, it, it's really, it's a weird, it's such a weird scene because you really kind of have no idea what's going on for like those few seconds. You think like, he, you think he's breaking character, but he doesn't do that. So like he can't, you know, that, but then what does that mean? Um, it's, it's a scene that I think about all the time just because of the way that he sounds and the way the like expressions that he makes that just don't go with the things that he's saying. Um, and there's like an intonation in his voice that's so, I don't know, it's just, it's so weird. It's like he's making fun of the whole thing, which I think he kind of is, uh, but also like he's into it because he's he's also a very dramatic person. You abandon all because he was sick and you have sinned. So say it now. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Say it louder. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Louder, Daniel. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I am sorry, Lord. I am sorry, Lord. I want the blood. I want the blood. You have abandoned your child. I've abandoned my child. I will never backslide. I will never backslide. I was lost, but now I am found. I was lost, but now I'm found. I have abandoned my child. Say it, say it. I've abandoned my child. Say it louder, say it louder. I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my boy! Beg for the blood! Give me the blood, Lord, and let me get away. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Get out of here, devil! Out, devil! Out, sin! Do you, do you accept the church of the third revelation as your spiritual God? It's such a good dual performance. I mean, it is... I think the uh, sort of template that he has set for his own career is this sort of like shrieking figure who can careen between emotional extremes. I mean, obviously the scene in the church is fantastic. There's such a push-pull in this film between the idea of like, what is your belief system? Is it in a higher power or is it in yourself? And I think that Paul, let's just call him Paul, I think that he uh, conveys uh, that sort of misguided belief very well. And I think the film is smart in that it sort of argues that all of these beliefs are misguided, right? I mean, like, putting all of your... Uh, putting all of your effort into religion seems incorrect and... You know, putting all of your efforts into business will destroy your life. So, so much of this film feels like a cautionary tale, and both of the performances do a good job communicating that. I don't know. I, 
I think a lot of people tend to think about the scene of um, I've abandoned my boy in the church where Plainview gets baptized as being kind of the central thesis of this movie. And I think that that's true, but I think that there are also just flashes of that spirituality, or at least that that portrait of morally bankrupt spirituality all throughout the movie. And I'm thinking about the shallow grave that is dug for the imposter that's just kind of filling up with oil slowly. Like this this man is, is murdered because he knows who Plainview is and Plainview... Um, he knows who Plainview is and Plainview knows that he's an imposter and that he's been used by somebody who he trusted. And so he's going to murder him and then bury him in the same thing that's making him rich. Um, there's also a lot of, I don't know, just co-opting of religion throughout this movie. So, so Plainview has the ability to take the words of the people around him and turn them in such a way that they sound very appealing to everybody when he's about to screw them out of their money and their livelihoods. So when Eli comes to him to ask to bless the oil rig and says, here's how I want you to be introduced, like call me a son of these hills, um, Plainview is willing to take that same language that sounds very upright and spiritual and kind of turn it on its head a little bit. So he uses um, Eli's little sister, Mary, and she's dressed all in white. She's, you know, she's the image of purity, but she's being used for very impure reasons because Plainview just doesn't give a shit about any of the people around him. He's willing to use what they think is important in order to get what he thinks is important. And he just happens to be better at that game than anybody else. There Will Be Blood was the film that made me fall in love with Paul Thomas Anderson. I was a college senior and I walked into the theater skeptical. The only other movie I'd seen by him was Punch Drunk Love, which had profoundly alienated me. And now that director I couldn't stand had made a period epic? I was absolutely disinterested. But something changed the moment the movie started. I could tell I was in the hands of an artist who compelled me implicitly. All these years later, the movie still has the same magnetic hold over me. When I watch There Will Be Blood, I'm convinced I am watching the greatest film of all time. Something about its mixture of stoicism and comic oddness captures me every time. This is a towering masterwork made by a director who refuses to take himself too seriously. It's a compelling cocktail of moods and tones, and one that never loses its freshness. I drink There Will Be Blood. I drink it up. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.